Well, it is uh, great to see you, Providence family. I hope you had a great break, a great holiday. And if you're new with us, uh, welcome. We are thrilled that you are here uh, as well. Uh, we had a, just a fantastic time. We had about four days down at the farm. Rained every single day, and which meant that four out of the five of us, that's an answer to prayer because it just means a lot of mud. And there's a whole farm full of mud and some four-wheelers. And so we, we had a great time. I hope you had a great time as well, that your heart was full uh, with Christ, uh, that uh, either family or friends uh, were there in your life to bring great encouragement to you. Uh, hopefully you ate um, well and uh, just leave it there. And, uh, uh, but it is so good to be back. It's good to sing with you. It's good to see you see your faces. Uh, and I pray that this time would be greatly encouraging to you. So if you would, let's bow and let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, come to you this morning and we come to your word, recognizing that it is just that it is your word to us, that you graciously give us revelation of who you are and who we are and how we're supposed to live in your world. And I pray, God, that you would give us not only wisdom, but that you would give us the gift of belief. That that belief would find feet and you would give us courage to apply your word to our life. Lord, this this morning specifically, I pray that you would search our heart and you would help us to see what or who we adore. And how that affects how we pray and how our prayers affect how we live. So, God, I pray that you would be glorified in this time. Would you speak through weakness and myself and through each and every one of us? And I pray, God, that you, by your word, would instruct us. We love you. We need your help now. And we look to you in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 6. And so I would love for you to uh, head there. There's lots of Bibles in the chairs uh, near you. If you don't have one in your hand, you can grab one of those. Uh, if you don't have one at home, take that home as a gift. Um, uh, the new year tends to inspire motivation within our heart. It's just sort of natural. Um, when there's a new week or a new month or a new year, um, sort of the wheels of our mind, the wheels of motivation just begin to turn. And we start thinking about either people or we think about projects or we think about um, self-improvement like diet or exercise or things we want to read or things we want to do. It's just natural for this to take place. But the fact is, is that anytime you have motivation, if you ever lack power to carry out that motivation, it only creates frustration. Some of us, we finished Christmas and we wanted to go on a diet. So we said so. We're going to go on a diet. But the problem is that your house, just like mine, had 38 remaining Buckeyes, right? Like God's gift to candy that he just drops down into our kitchen, right? And so, and so for many of us, we said, you know what? I'm going to leave those for someone else. But I'm going to be good. And you were good for breakfast. And then lunch came. And it was over, right? You had no power whatsoever. And as a result of that, your motivation actually turned into frustration as you felt like now I'm even further behind than where I began. For some of us, there's a project or a task that you looked at or you look at right now in your life. And you say, you know what? In this new year, this is what I'm going to give my hands to. But isn't it interesting that if you lack the tools or the know-how to do it, that that motivation eventually turns to frustration? We eventually say, I forget it. I can't do it anyway. Some of us, we woke up and we start thinking about people. We start thinking about friends or family members. We start thinking about relationships, some of which are broken. And maybe God motivated you to say, you know what? I'm going to reach out to some of these relationships. And maybe this this one in particular, I need to make a phone call in order to confess my sin or to try to reconcile this friendship. 
And maybe your motivation stirred you to get all the way to where you dialed every single number. And all you had to do was hit the green button and it would dial. And you just could not force your finger to, to drop down upon that. You, you lack power. And as a result of that, maybe your motivation, it turned into frustration. It just can't happen. We all have things that we want to do. In the freshness of a new year, it creates some motivation. And this is also true of us collectively. As a church family, we exist to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and to worship him. And to this end, we seek to plant our lives within the church. We seek to plant the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in our city. And we seek to plant churches in the world. And yet, isn't it true that without power, our motivation to do these things will turn into frustration. And that's why we're starting 2019 looking at some of the teaching that Jesus gave about prayer because Jesus said that he has all the power available and needed for the mission and he gives it to those who pray. Who pray. And so Matthew 6, starting in verse 1, he sets the context of what he's talking about in these verses. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Now, immediately you start thinking about it and say, we're in trouble, right? You came to church. You may have offered someone your parking spot or you opened a door for someone. You say, well, I just violated what Jesus said. And that's not the case because of what he says next in order to be seen by them. And so he addresses the motives of our heart of why we do the things that we do. And he says, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And then he sets up three case studies. The first one is giving, the second one is prayer, and the third one is fasting. And he filters those, those, those things through verse 1. And so we're going to start with prayer. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows that you need what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's interesting what takes place as he finishes up his sermon. This is in the middle of something called the Sermon on the Mount. He went up on a mountain and he started preaching. So we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. When he finishes his sermon, he calls 12 disciples to himself. And those 12 disciples had the opportunity for just over three years to observe him living his life. How he led people, how he loved people, how he led himself. They had the privilege to be able to listen to his amazing authoritative teaching. They had the privilege to see him perform miracles over nature, over sickness, over evil, over storms, over, over, over everything. And it's interesting that they never ask him, would you teach me how to do that? But one day, Luke chapter 11 tells us that Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us 
to pray. It's the only time in the Gospels where the 12 disciples or any one of them asked specifically for Jesus to teach them what it is that he's doing. This is remarkable. We never find one of them coming up and say, you know, that whole walking on the water thing, that would go really well with my father-in-law. Can you teach me how to do that? Right? It's not there. Would you teach me how to teach how you teach? It's not there. No, but they watch him pray. They watch him talk to the father and they come to him and they say, look, we want to know how you do that. You see, we know how to talk to our friends. And when you're standing here, we know how to talk to you. We believe that you're God. We 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 know how to talk to you. But prayer seems to be just this different animal. We constantly line up and we take a swing and we keep missing. And so our motivation turns into frustration. We get distracted so quickly. Sometimes we just want to be with you so much. And yet it feels like we're trying to crack a coconut with our hands. We just cannot get into the center where where all the refreshment is. It's just hard. Sometimes it feels like it's just so one sided that we pray and we pray and we pray. And we're like, God, just tell me something. And they look at Jesus and they say, but you make it look so real and so personal and so valuable, so relational. Would you teach us how to do that? And Jesus, at that point in time, he takes him back to what he what we just read in Matthew six. He says this, he goes, when you pray. Say. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now, if you compare the Lord's Prayer that's found in Luke 11 and Matthew 6, they're slightly different, just a few different words. But it's interesting to me that when they ask Jesus, can you teach us how to pray, that he takes them back to what he said. It's the mirror of Matthew 6 that's also the mirror that shows them this is how I pray. They say, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus says, all right, this is how you do it. And what we looked at last week with Dave O is, is our father in heaven. He sets the whole prayer on the context of a relationship between children and a father. You see, the father, the word father there, what that means is it promises us compassion, that we're talking to someone who's compassionate. And when he says in heaven, What he's saying is that we're talking to someone who is capable, who has all authority in heaven and earth. So we're talking to someone of utmost perfect compassion and capability. And so once we establish that fact, where does he take us next? And this is really important. He tells us to pray in ways that reveal what our heart adores. What I'm going to show you. Some, some of the desires that Jesus has that you can see if you look from the backside of what he tells us to actually say when we're praying. And this is really important because there's a lot of us that have a lot of questions about prayer. And this is what I want you to know is that prayer becomes very, very simple when you adore the right thing. And it becomes very, very difficult when you don't. And so this is where he begins. Most of us, we just say, you know, feel guilty about prayer. He's going to guilt me. And I'm not going to guilt you in the prayer. I'm going to ask you to do what Jesus asked you to do. And that's to look at what you love. So let's look at his desires. The first one that we see is that Jesus desires that our heart be consumed by his glory. 
that we'd be consumed by his glory. You see, God's desire to be glorified in all the earth must begin in your heart, in my heart. He cannot be glorified in all of the earth until he's glorified in your heart. And so you need to start there. And so do I. He says, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is an interesting word. It's an old English word that really has no contemporary equivalent. There's no word like it. And so even modern translations of the New Testament, they just go back and say, well, we better just go with hallowed because what else can we use? To hallow something is to make it, though, our ultimate concern. When you hallow something, it's to make it your greatest treasure. When you hallow something, it's to make it your recurring daydream. It's what you daydream about. It's what you think about. It's what you pray about. It's what you want when you don't have to want or daydream or pray about anything else. And he says, hallowed be your name. What's he saying? He's saying, come to the Father. Come to me as God and say, God, I pray that your glory would be the ultimate concern of my life. Jesus is saying, I want you to pray that my name, my name. You remember the last series we just did? What a name. We looked at Isaiah chapter 9 when it says, and his name shall be. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And we kept looking at names. Jesus means savior, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the high priest, he's the advocate, he's the champion. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the faithful and the true. All of these names that we find within scripture reflect his attributes and they also reflect our need. It's what we need that he has the ability to supply. And so what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, I want you to pray that my name and all of my attributes. That they would tower over your life like Mount Everest towers. That it would tower over your daily interactions. That it would tower over your thoughts. That it would tower over your phone calls. It would tower over the way that you treat your clients. Just imagine that if every time you're talking to somebody, behind that someone, you could see Mount Everest. It's always in view. And this is what he's saying. That if we are hallowing Jesus Christ, if we're hallowing him, what what that means is this, is that he's utterly consequential. We're aware of him. We're aware of his promises. We're, 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 We're always in the shadow of all that he is to us. And this is what's available to us. Now, why does Jesus start here? Why does he why does he start with Hallowed? Isn't it interesting? I think this is why he starts there. It's because Jesus knows that we all cry for help whenever our treasure is at stake. Just a few months ago, I was at the fair and I was going to walk over to get Tabitha, who was driving in late to the fair. And and a person in front of me has a heart attack. And his wife begins to scream, help, help, help. No one had to teach you how to do that. Why did she do that? Because when what we love, when what we hallow, when what we adore, when what we treasure is threatened or jeopardized, we instinctively cry out. We instinctively even pray. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if my glory 
were the ultimate treasure of your life, then you would instinctively become people who pray as you live inside a world that reviles me. If it's true that what, that we cry out when what we treasure is threatened, that if he was our greatest treasure and we live in a world that reviles and distorts and despises and sees him as inconsequential, that we will constantly be a praying people because our treasure will be threatened to us. All around us, people are saying he's not important and yet he's our greatest treasure. This is what creates a people who pray. Who pray. So how do we know what our ultimate treasure is? I could stand up and say, oh, my ultimate treasure is Jesus. But is it? How do we know? Well, Jesus gives us the hints and he gives it with what we read beforehand. We look at our secret world. We look at what we think about when we don't have to think about anything. We look at what we dream about, what we daydream about. We look at what we pray about when we're praying alone. You see, there's something about our secret world that doesn't need a filter. There's nobody there to mock us or applaud us. And so we don't have to hide behind perceptions and I want them to think a certain way, so I'm going to pray this way. No, when we're in our secret place, when we're, when we're in our secret world and only God sees, then what we think about, what we dream about is what we hallow. It's the most important thing. Now, Jesus is not condemning public prayer. In fact, Jesus prays publicly in John 9, and then he asks us to pray together in public in Matthew 18. Now, what he's doing is, is he's showing us how to see what we hallow. You see, the recurring storyline of our daydreams and the recurring petitions of our prayers is the accurate reflection of what we hallow. Now, listen to this very carefully. If we hallow God, if he is our central concern, if he is our chief end, if he is our recurring daydream, if if he is everything to us, then listen, that adoration will be the tailwind of our petition and confession. You see, adoration is what we think about God. Confession is what we think about ourselves, and petition is what we think about the world. It's how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see the world. And so if Jesus Christ is our central treasure and he is hallowed within our life, he is the Mount Everest over us, then his power and his glory actually filters down and it provides us this enormous wind at our back that sets our sails and allows us to confess and make petitions to him on the basis of his glory. But if, however, what we hallow is not God, then our misplaced adoration will be a stiff headwind for our petition and confession. Jesus starts with hallowed be thy name because he knows that our prayer will be unlocked if we adore the right thing. It will become simple. It will become pleasurable. And so Jesus desires that our heart be consumed by his glory. The second thing we see, though, is that Jesus desires that our hearts be moved by his mission. You notice what that word is connected to. Hallowed be thy 
name. Thy name. You see, adoration always turns into mission. Always. Adoration or what we hallow, it always turns into mission. This is why if you go to a football game and your team scores a touchdown like these fans, right? You, you, you look for someone to celebrate with. Why is it that if you go to an art gallery if you, or if you go to a football game, you see something that causes your heart tremendous joy and you look for someone to say, did you see that? Why? It's because our joy in anything is maximized. It grows when we're able to share it with other people. Adoration must be shared. It can't not be shared. It's what we do. We talk about what we're excited about. We talk about what we hallow. We talk about what we adore. We must do it. You say, why, why, are we, why is our mission as a church to introduce all peoples to Jesus Christ? Why are we seeking to plant the gospel within our city and to plant churches within the world? It's because of adoration. It's adoration that sees him, Jesus Christ, as the supreme worth. It's adoration that, that sees his supreme sacrifice when he came to this earth to die on a cross, to be buried in a grave, and to rise from the dead in order to forgive us of our sin. It's adoration that sees his mission as the supreme mission over heaven and earth. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. As the waters cover the sea, this will happen. This mission will end in victory. It will succeed. You see, our adoration in anything, it must be shared. If you just have this thing for peacock feathers, then you share it with somebody else. Someone else has to see your feathers. You don't keep it to yourself. If your thing is NC State football, then someone else is going. Someone else is going to receive your instruction, your adoration. It's what we do. Now think about it this way. If there were 10 of us in this room that saw Jesus as the ultimate treasure of our life, then would we not expect to see our group grow to 11? Would we not hope for more to be able to experience what we adore so that we can say, do you see, look, look at him. Look what he did for us. Do you see it? People in churches that have a mission problem always have an adoration problem. He is the bright and beautiful, the glorious treasure over earth. And most people cannot see him. And it's to this end that Jesus asked us to pray. What does he ask us to pray? He asks us to pray, God, would you see to it that your name is hallowed? That's what it means. Hallowed be your name. What's he saying? He's saying, Father, I adore you. I see you as everything in my life. But many don't. Many revile you. Many people see you as inconsequential. And there's two billion people on the earth who've never even heard. They don't know anything about Jesus. They have no idea that Jesus has come to forgive them of their sin. I just can't stand it anymore. So would you cause your name to be hallowed, to be seen as holy, to be seen as consequential, to be seen as the greatest treasure on earth? This is what he's asking us to pray. He goes on and he says, your kingdom come and your will be done. What does this mean? 
But think about this. If you're a parent, you promise your kids a trip to Disney. What do they do? Well, they begin hoping. And hoping, right, it always comes out the mouth. That's what hope does. We begin talking about what we hope about. So the little kids, dad, is it today? I know you promised and you always make good on your promise. Oh, let it be today. Let it be today. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, you know, you know what the Bible says, that one day that my reign will be supreme over heaven and earth, that my scepter will be one of peace and justice and righteousness. And so this is how I want you to pray. I want you to go to my father and pray, God, I know one day that Jesus Christ will be king over all and his kingdom will have no end. There will be no transfers of power, no elections. There'll be no wars or injustice or death or shame or sickness. I want that day now. But your Bible says in Matthew, Matthew 24, it says that the gospel must go to the ends of the earth, to every single nation before that day comes. And so I'm asking you to fit my feet with shoes to help me run there quick. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come here, your will be done. It takes resources to do this. And so he says, give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? He's saying, God, would you provide what is needed for us to get there? It's not free. It takes resources to get there. This is the ultimate end of life. This is the chief mission of earth. This is it. This is why you're alive. It's to worship him. That's why you're alive. This must filter our prayers if we adore him. So we have to ask, well, if he is God and he is sovereign and he has a plan and a mission that he tells us he is going by his strength to fulfill, then why would he enlist us to pray? Just go do it already. Why would he tell us to pray? And this is why. It's because Jesus desires that our hearts see prayer as vital to his mission. It's not inconsequential to what he's doing. And this always stuns me. The fact that this is true and that I'm going to teach it doesn't mean that I get it. Or totally can internalize it myself as to what's taking place here. But Jesus is telling us to ask him to do what he tells us he wants to do. He tells us that he wants his name to be hallowed. And one day it will. But instead of just hallowing it. He asks us to ask him to do what he says he wants to do. He says in another place, God, would you send laborers to the harvest? (laughs) Well, Jesus, if you want laborers, just send them already. No, Jesus says, no, I want, I'm going to ask you to ask me to do what I want to do. This is like me telling Tabitha to ask me, she's my wife, to ask me to give her a hug when I already want to. Tabitha, I really want to give you a hug right now. But before I do, I'm asking you to ask me to give to you. This is what he's saying. Why? If God has a plan, why enlist us to pray? Why wouldn't it just be like a lazy river? Right? We've, we've all been on a lazy river, haven't we? Aren't they glorious? 
You know, there's two ways to travel around this little track, isn't there? One, you sit on your tube and you just drift. You'll get there. You'll spin around. You'll bump off the walls, but you'll get there. Or you can paddle like you mean it, right? So the question is this. Why not just float down the lazy river of Christianity, trusting God that he's going to get it all done? Why paddle with prayer? And this is why, because God has not only ordained the end, he's also ordained the means to reach the end. And that means is prayer. It's prayer. See, this mission needs power that's simply not found in us. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this world, that's Satan, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They can't see. And God has not given anyone in this room the ability to persuade. That veil from coming off people's eyes, we don't have the power. And so he says, but I have the power and I'll give it to those who pray. And so we pray. We pray. Before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to talk to you just briefly about a few things, a few simple but very challenging takeaways, a few applications. The first is this. Let me encourage you. Let's honestly identify what we hallow. Look at your daydreams. Listen to your secret prayers. And if you find that you hallow something more than God, which we all do, then repent of it and repent of adoring a lesser thing. Some of us in this room, we have dreamt our whole life about running out of a football tunnel before 100,000 fans cheering our name. Have you ever thought what it would look like for your central daydream to see God run out of the tunnel? To six billion screaming fans. You see, C.S. Lewis says, Our Heavenly Father has provided many delightful ends for us along our journey, but He takes great care to see that we do not mistake in any of them for home. We all have dreams. There's nothing wrong with running out of a tunnel and having aspirations that, that lead someone to work hard, to do something. But isn't it interesting that everybody who's ever run out of a tunnel will tell you that that's not the point, that's not the final victory lap of life? It's not enough. Only Jesus can be the ultimate treasure. And therefore, only Jesus is the one to hallow. So ask God to become bigger and brighter in your heart. The second thing is this, is let's position ourselves where love for Christ can grow. Let's position ourselves where love for Christ can grow. If you're in Jesus Christ, you need to know, and when I say in Jesus Christ, that, that's words from the New Testament of someone who has trusted Christ as Savior who's believed in him, confessed him as Lord, and God has adopted that person into his family. That's what it means to be in Christ. Well, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you need to know that there's nothing that can separate you from his love, but there are things you can do that remove you from its immediate tangible benefits. I've used this before, but most of us, we showered before we came today. You turned the water on and you didn't immediately stand under it. And as a result of that, you lost the possibility of that water affecting your life because it went down the drain. You say it was cold, doesn't matter. Maybe so, right? It may have been hot. And you got out of the, you're in the shower, but you just kind of move over. This is how it is with the love of God. His love is constantly flowing. 
And yet there's places that we can stand to where it falls over our head. And there's places where we can stand on this earth where it doesn't. Jude one twenty one says, keep yourself in the love of God. He's not saying here, earn God's love. That's not what he's saying. He says, you have God's love. It's constantly flowing over you, but stand under it. Stand under it so you can receive its benefits. And so where do you stand? Where do we place ourselves? where love for Christ can grow within our heart? One of the ways is prayer. Well, that's one of the places is you get on your knees before him. Or you don't have to get on your knees. Your heart just needs to bend before him. And ask God every morning to increase your awareness of his power and his promises over your life. This is one of the things I pray every single day. God, I want your name to be hallowed first in my heart. Would you help me to see you as big and bright in all these meetings and all these things I need to do today? Would you help me to see you be the Everest that just towers over everything in my life today? The second place you can, you can stand is the Bible itself. I know that when I devote time for the First few moments of the day to God's word. He renews my vision for his glory. He, he reminds me of my place and his place over my life. He absorbs anxiety and he helps me resist temptation. And if you have a Bible reading plan, then use it. If you don't, there's one in the back. There's little journals that we made available. They're, they're back there for you. So take it. I exhort you. If you don't have a plan, do that with me. Do that with us as a church family. Read the Bible. And, and then another place where you can... You can really experience tremendous love is community. You need a group. You see, I encourage you to get in a group where people are there who hallow Jesus. Because what happens is you can help one another. Is that you're having a low time and you're walking with the Lord. Maybe other people around you are like, you know, don't forget this is who God is. And then sometimes you may be doing well and they're in need of your adoration. You, you, you have to get with people. And here at Providence, we call those places life groups. Back at Next Steps this morning, there's people, there's a big banner that says, find a life group. And if you're not in a life group, this is a perfect opportunity for you to start because life groups start today. It's just a place where you can go, where you can learn more, where you can pray for people, where you can know people and they can know and pray for you, where you can mutually encourage one another to share the gospel and to be about this mission. And that gets to the third and last is let's adopt God's mission as the mission of our life. You have a mission. You're doing something with your life. And let me just encourage you to make sure that that aligns with his mission because his mission is the one that will be established for eternity. One day when you and I, we're, we're, we're all going to see, one day when we see the totality of Jesus' glory, we're going to know that displaying that glory was the only ultimate concern that was worth the limited number of our days. That that was the filter by which we were supposed to be thinking about our parenting and, 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 and work and relationships and everything else. But you don't have to wait. You can open up the Bible and you can see evidence that he alone is worthy of adoration. And that adoration is going to turn into mission. And that mission, I want to encourage you to engage. Engage. You all received a little pamphlet as you came in of the various mission trips in 2019 here at Providence. There's like 20 of them, I believe. There's an opportunity for you to go. And I want to encourage you to consider going just after we're done out these doors. There's going to be a place. There's even donuts back there here, right? Where, where there's all these, all these little tables and you can go and talk to a representative for every single one of these trips to see what they're doing, to see maybe if there's one of these that you would be able to go on. Not all of us will be able to go this year. And so that's why the mission also needs giving and it also needs praying. 
And so I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to see his mission as the ultimate mission of your life. It's the mission of your home. It's the mission of your marriage. You see, God has given us the Lord's Supper to help us to remember that he is the supreme worth sacrifice, that his mission is, is, is supreme over all. So for those that will be serving us, if you want to go ahead and stand up and head to the back as we get ready to pass out these two elements, the bread and the cup, they're symbolic of Jesus' body and his blood. And Jesus tells us to take them regularly as people who believe in him. And we're supposed to do this really for more than one reason. One is to remember what he has done for us. But second is to proclaim to one another that we are believing what he has done for us. So if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, we encourage you to do so. But if you haven't yet, we ask you to let these things pass. Because to take them is to say that I treasure them. And then... Let me just encourage you that if you do know Christ, we welcome you to this table. If he's your Savior and Lord. And so as these things are passed, let me encourage you to spend this time praying. Praying over what you've heard. Praying over, maybe asking the Lord, God, would you identify what is it that, is my, that I hallow? What is my central adoration in life? And maybe get right with the Lord if you need to. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. And God, as we, um, as we come to you, as we pray to you, we ask now that you would search our hearts, that you would help us to be grateful, that this tangible reminder would be just that, a reminder of the greatest man who ever lived this earth, who ever walked it, of the greatest death and sacrifice the earth has ever seen, and now the greatest mission that's worth our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.